Um, could I, if you've got your Bible, please leave them open at, uh, at Ruth 2. Uh, the next little while we'll be touching in, looking at a verse here or blocks of verse, uh, blocks of the, uh, the chapter. So please keep them handy so we can refer to them when we need to. Biographies. I don't, if I'm inclined to read something, it's probably going to be a biography more than anything else. In the 70s, I had a library of biographies, pretty much of all the Australian cricketers of the day. I could tell you the life stories of Lily, Marsh, Thompson, Walker, Doug Walters, the Chapel Brothers. But what about your own biography? How do you think that might look? Theologian John Flavel suggested biographies should be written using the Hebrew alphabet because they're best read backwards. <laughs> that helps to make it clear what God was doing in your life and what you didn't see at the time. About 40 years ago, when I was very young, I was transferred with my work in the bank to Griffith in western New South Wales, then a town of just under 20,000 people, and that's where Diane was living. At the time, I was waiting to be accepted into the police force. Not long after arriving, the acceptance letter came through and I resigned from the bank. I also gave notice on my rental for my last few weeks that I was going to be in Griffith. After two weeks, I had a rethink on joining the police force and withdrew my resignation to stay on with the bank. So then I had to find another place to rent. I did, in a flat next to Diane. <laughs> and the rest, they say, is history. <laughs> That little period took about five months. Getting to that took another five years, but <laughs> Diane can tell you that part of the story. It's a lot clearer to see God's hand in these things when we play all that backwards. At the time, I saw it as just days and weeks of mental turmoil and change. Should I, shouldn't I, what am I going to do? Moving towns, changing jobs, moving houses. Looking back now, I think it's very clear that God's hand was behind it all. A great chapter to put in my life story if it ever becomes worth writing. In Ruth 2, we're getting the reader's view of what happened, not the actor's view. It's like reading a biography backwards when you know the story but you get the opportunity to pick up on the clues that otherwise might have been missed. But before we dive into this story, let's pray. Lord our Heavenly Father, we thank you for who you are and for your word. Father, settle our minds and our hearts to hear your word this morning. Father God, please help me to speak clearly and be true to your word. We pray that you'll renew us in, in our desire to love you, to serve you and to follow you. Amen. After Matt led us through chapter one of Ruth last week, we have two main characters left. We've got Naomi and Ruth, and they've got some major needs. As Matt told us, in those days, if there was no man, there was no food. They needed food and they needed family. And that's what the rest of the book of Ruth is somehow going to have to try and resolve. This part of the story of Ruth has been written in a way that's mainly a series of conversations between different parties that are there. And the author cleverly adds in a few little moments of intrigue and some clues for us to think about. The first of these is in verse 1. We have the unusual opening of Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. Out of nowhere we learn of Boaz. Where did he come from? These two important facts about Boaz are mentioned in verse 1. One, 
He's from the clan of Elimelech. In Israelite society, an individual was part of a family. Your family was part of a clan, and different clans made up the tribes. The clan level was the most important social family group that there was in Israelite society. That's important because if you were part of someone's clan, then you had responsibilities for caring for the others in your clan. Boaz is from the same clan as Elimelech, and Elimelech was Naomi's husband. That's the first fact. The second is that it says he's a worthy man, which could be a reference to his wealth. It could also be a reference simply to the type of man he was, his character. Boaz doesn't enter the action just yet, but what we've got, the, but what we've got here is the author saying, there's this guy named Boaz from the clan of Elimelech, and he sounds like a pretty solid guy, so keep a watch out for him. Verse 2. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean among the grain, the ears of grain, after him in whose sight I shall find favour. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. God had set up within the harvest season a means for providing for the poor and the destitute, those who had no land, those who had no food. And the means he had set up was set out in the laws of Leviticus 19. He'd commanded that landowners and harvesters were not to harvest in the corners of the fields. They were to leave behind some grain for the poor and the destitute to come behind and collect it for themselves. It had a twofold purpose. One, it made sure that the poor wouldn't go hungry. And two, it encouraged them to be proactive in providing for themselves. This was perfect for the situation we have here for Ruth and Naomi. For Ruth and Naomi. They have nothing to their name and Ruth sets out to see if she can find someone who's following God's command, someone who would grant her favour. Ruth needs to be granted favour. She's a foreign woman, a Moabite woman in the Israelite culture. She has to find where, find a field where someone would let her come behind and to at least get a little bit of grain from here and there, just a little bit of food, enough to last them a day or two. And now it starts to get really good. Verse 3 says, So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers, and she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz. And Boaz, who was part of the, part of the clan of Elimelech. What a coincidence. She happened. We might say today, what are the chances, or who'd have thought it? She just happened to go out in the middle of all these fields in Judah, and she happened to find herself in, who would have thought, the field belonging to Boaz. Now, as Christians, we know that nothing happens by accident or chance under the watch of God. Everything happens by God's design and God's providence, just like how Diane and I met. The way God had planned by moving me across New South Wales, changing and then rechanging my career path and then home, and then changing my home, and Diane's path that was also directed to that point, to be in that flat at that time, we're not... We're not driven or caught up by some blind force or chance or, or coincidence. There's a sovereign God who's always orchestrating the events of his people for their good and for his glory. This now starts to get even better when we get to verse 4. And behold, Boaz arrived from Bethlehem, and he said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered, The Lord bless you. And bless you too. <laughs> 
This is starting to sound like the plot of a B-grade movie. Ruth just happened to come into Boaz's field and when she got there, you'll never guess who happened to show up at the same time. What are the chances? Again, if this were the plot of a movie or a book, you'd turn it off or put it back on the shelf. The timing of Boaz's arrival is obviously perfect because God's timing is perfect. He's the landowner who just happened by chance to come along and check out the, work in the, the workers in his fields. Boaz isn't your typical landlord. He doesn't sit back and have others look after the farm. He gets his hands dirty. He doesn't think it's beneath him to work in the fields and he's respectful of the workers in the field. The first words we hear out of Boaz's mouth is, the Lord be with you. We've got a picture from the moment Boaz comes onto the scene that he's a man of God. And the workers respond, the Lord bless you. When Boaz asks his foreman, whose young woman is that? He means, to whom does she belong? Or what clan is she part of? Remember, Ruth's the Moabite, with no husband and no clan to live with. She needs a family, and that's how the foreman replied in 6 and 7. She's the Moabitess who came back from Moab with Naomi. She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves behind the harvesters. She went into the field and has worked steadily from morning till now, except for a short rest. So now we've shifted from that B-grade movie to an Oscar winner. <laughs> Boaz is thinking of all the fields, in all the towns, in all of Israel, she walks in the mine. And if you didn't chuckle then, speak to someone who's about over 50, they might explain what that was all about. <laughs> Next thing we see that Boaz has gone to talk to the Moabites, which is very surprising. We've got a wealthy Israelite landowner going directly to a Moabite woman, a foreigner, and she's, she's really the lowest rung on the, so, on the social ladder. And Boaz says, now listen, my daughter, do not go and glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. I don't know whether this was Boaz's preferred pickup line, but when you really think about it, that this is incredible what Boaz is saying to Ruth. Don't go and glean in another field. Don't leave this one. You can almost visualise the gestures that's, as Boaz speaks these words. Don't go into that field over there. Don't go to these other fields as well. Boaz is really pleading with her. You stay here, you'll be provided for in this field, and you'll be protected in this field. In that day, remember, we're in the, and we're, remember we're in the days of judges where things were pretty lawless, it, be, it would be dangerous, dangerous for foreigners and more so for foreign women. They'd be abused, mistreated, insulted in the fields. Boaz is saying, you're going to be protected here and you're going to be safe. Think about all the boundaries that Boaz has crossed in showing mercy to this Moabite woman. You can drink from these jars. This is a time when foreigners fill jars for the Israelites to drink and the women fill jars for the men to drink. What you've got here is Israelite men filling jars for a Moabite woman. Then we get to verse 10, which sounds very melodramatic, but in light of what's just happened, it makes a bit more sense. She fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found, found favour in your eyes, that you should take notice of me, since I'm a foreigner? That's the key message of the chapter right here. It's set up at the very beginning, back in verse 2. Ruth was seeking someone who will show her favour. And then she's shocked because somebody has. 
Boaz's words to Ruth and Ruth's response to Boaz give us a picture of blessing, mercy and love. Listen to this picture and then follow through from verse 11. But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me. And how, you, and how you have left your father and mother and your native land to come to a people that you didn't know before. The Lord repay you for what you've done and for a full reward you be give, and a full reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you've come to take refuge. And then she said, I have found favour in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. Ruth had shown mercy to Naomi, and now the Lord's repaying that mercy through Boaz. As we read from Matthew 5, 7, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. The stage is now set for verse 14. And at mealtime Boaz said to her, Come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers, and he passed to her roasted grain. And she ate until she was satisfied, and she had some left over. This is not just a meal, this is a lot deeper. This is a picture of fellowship and service at the table, not just sitting around the table. Think about this. She sat beside the reapers and he passed to her roasted grain. Boaz, this is Boaz going to her and serving her at his table. He's the lord of the harvest, serving a foreigner and a woman at his table. Have some bread, dip it in the wine. Who remembers Sizzlers? Yes. <laughs> Who doesn't know of Sizzlers? Good. <laughs> I don't have to explain that one then. Remember, it's the place that, with the all-you-can-eat buffet and the cheese toast. Yes. yes. Can't forget the cheese toast. <laughs> Sizzlers have gone, all gone from Australia now. The last store closed down over at Campbelltown in 2020. Along with all the obvious food wastage, COVID was probably the final thing that finished them off. There were stories, and these might have been urban myths, of people who would go in there for their meals and sit there forever, munching on the cheese toast, but sneak in a heap of containers at the same time and get their meals for the week. They took more than their fill. This is a bit like Sizzler's here. Have some bread, taste better with something on it, dip it in the wine, nibble on some other grains. And Ruth's right into it. She ate until she was satisfied and she had some left over. After the feast, Boaz brings the reapers in and says to them he needs their help. Boaz instructed his young men, saying in verse 15, Let her glean even among the sheaves, and do not reproach her, and also pull out from the bundles for her, and leave it for her to glean, and do not rebuke her. So Ruth gleaned in the field until evening. Then she threshed the barley she had gathered, and it amounted to an ephah of barley. Again, Ruth will be provided for and protected. Boaz is going to make sure of it, much more than he needed to do under the law. An ephah in today's measures is probably around about 20 to 25 kilos. She was well provided for. We know Ruth is a pretty tough woman because the next verse she says she took it up and went into the city and that's after a full day's work in the harvest field and then time on the threshing room floor. <laughs> now try and picture Naomi's face when Ruth walks in the door she's been sitting there all day hoping that Ruth is safe thinking 
maybe she'll come back with a little meal for the evening. And she comes back hauling a 20 kilogram bag of grain. Naomi's standing there with a jaw on the ground. And then Ruth reaches into her back pocket and says, and here's some cheese toast as well. <laughs> Naomi sounds like she's beside herself. The words are just gushing out of her mouth. Where did you glean today? Where have you been working? Blessed is the man who took notice of you. Remember the last time that we saw Naomi? She wanted to be known as Mara, the bitter one. In what seems like an instant, she's gone from bitterness to blessedness. What the author's done, and to me it seems very intentional, Ruth knows she's been working in the fields of Boaz, but Ruth doesn't know the significance of, of Boaz. Ruth knows who Boaz is, but she doesn't know whose field Ruth's been working in. You'd think Naomi's happy now with just having the grain. Wait. The main piece of information is still to be revealed. The author holds that until the very last word of verse 19. Ruth told her mother about the place she'd been working. The name of the man I work with today is Boaz. And Naomi, or guess, would be pretty stunned. May he be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, The man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. There are two key words worth considering that verse. The first is kindness. His kindness has not forsaken. Loving kindness, grace and mercy. The second word is redeemer. Leviticus 25 tells us, that the tells us about the role of the redeemer, or the kinsman, kinsman redeemer. A kinsman is a relative, one who's part of a family or clan. They would have a right of redemption, a right to purchase or to buy back property, to provide for someone whose family had left them destitute, someone whose husband had died. Ruth realises this is not just an extraordinary honourable man who has helped her that day. He is their kinsman redeemer. And so Naomi begins plotting the next step. Naomi tells Ruth to do what Boaz has said, to stay with young women, to be safe, and keep gleaning until the end of the harvest. So where are we at? Two major problems in the book of Ruth that I mentioned that needed to be solved. They needed food and they needed family. We know Ruth stayed in the fields of Boaz, gleaning until the harvest was finished. We don't know for sure if she walked home with 20 kilos of grain every day, but I think we can assume that by the end of the two or three months, Ruth has experienced the provision of God through the kindness of Boaz, a provision that will take her and Naomi through the rest of the year, an amazing provision. So I think we can safely say that we can check, check off food. The other problem is still out there, though, the need for family. Ruth is still a Moabitess, living with her mother-in-law in Israel, and that's where Ruth too stops. You get to the very last sentence, and it's, she lived with her mother-in-law. It's a sudden ending to the chapter. It's almost like when you're watching a, sh a show, and it's getting to the end, and all the pieces and clues are starting to come, come together, and they go, join us next week for the next instalment of Farmer Wants a Wife. <laughs> what do we have to learn from this chapter of Ruth, though? There are at least two views of the gospel that are, that are reflected in Ruth 2. Firstly, we don't see God explicitly mentioned in every single verse in the book of Ruth, but we see God's providence at work through this chapter. We see words in verse 3, she happened to come to. The way Ruth is written is intentional. It shows us that God is working behind the scenes in what the chapters in the story are doing, the characters in the story are doing with their mercy and grace to, to and for each other. 
Philippians 2.13 says, For it's God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. The characters in the story are ultimately revealing the character of God to us. God is showing his love for Naomi through through the devotion of Ruth to Naomi. And God is showing his concern for the poor and the less fortunate and the foreigner by Boaz's concern for the poor foreigner. Secondly, the author of Ruth is showing us a picture, a glimpse of the mercy and grace of God that helps us understand the gospel through the character of Boaz. We're told at the start Boaz is a worthy man and we see evidence to support that claim through the passage. He treats the outcast as his family, he shelters the weak, he serves the hungry at his table, he showers the needy with his grace. And remember this is all happening in the time of judges where everyone seemed to be doing things that were right in their own eyes. For a person to stand fasting to their God and act as God expected was an example of a worthy man. Boaz saw Ruth's vulnerability, unable to fend for herself safely as a foreign widow, and he chose to protect and provide for her. Boaz's mercy shown to Ruth preempts the gospel. Mercy is not just not punishing somebody, it's showing compassion for someone suffering or distress. God's mercy towards every one of us is central in the gospel message. Recognising our sinfulness and our inability to save ourselves, God, in his mercy, sent Jesus Christ. Jesus cared deeply about the poor and the downtrodden, demonstrating his compassion in tangible ways, giving sight to the blind, touching the leper, healing the sick, feeding the poor, raising the dead, and ultimately giving his life for us. Now, what I want to try and do now is... is take what we know, know from this story of Ruth and Boaz so far and consider, consider how it might affect us today in 2508. And I'd like to finish by briefly touching on four things. Firstly, under God, nothing ever happens by chance. Things don't just happen. Everything's part of God's plan. Think about it. There's nothing in your life or mine that's happened in the past or even in this last week that's accidental. God's orchestrating the events of your week and your life for your good and for his glory. We can trust in God's plan for our lives, knowing that he works behind the scenes, even in difficult times. This trust enables us to face challenges with faith and hope, knowing that God's grace and mercy will guide us through life's uncertainties. Secondly, stay in God's field. You don't have to go anywhere else. God's mercy and grace will be found there. If you've been wandering into other fields, fields of corruption, fields of sin, fields of materialism, may God help you see the things that you're running after, robbing you of the protection, the refuge and the joy that's found in the field of God under his grace. Third, be an instrument of God's grace and mercy. Boaz's actions, the compassion he showed in the environment he was in, really shows how we can be instruments of God in the lives of others. Be alert to the needs of those around you, extend a helping hand and show generosity. Help someone out help someone out of a field where they shouldn't be or don't even realise they're in. An act of kindness, no matter how small, can have a profound impact on someone's life and provide a glimpse of the gospel in action. 
It's been said people don't remember what's on your headstone, only what you engraved on their heart. And finally, recognise your need to receive God's grace and mercy. Ruth's humility and gratitude in response to Boaz's kindness reminds us of our own need for God's grace. Don't be too proud to ask for help. Don't be too proud to receive help and support from those around you. God delivered through Boaz. He'll deliver through you from someone you may or may not know. We need to be open to receiving grace from others. Ultimately, this is, this is coming from God. This is part of God's plan too. By embracing, by embracing God's grace and mercy, it allows us to experience what God wants us to. Wants us to. We can build a deep trust in God's plan for our lives, knowing that he works behind the scenes, even in difficult circumstances. This trust enables us to face challenges with faith and hope. God's grace and mercy will guide us through life's uncertainties. We saw Ruth and Naomi shift from desperation to hope. This really shows God's grace to his people. When God seems furthest from us, he may be laying the foundations for the greatest display of faithful, faithfulness to us. God's constantly working with us, in us, and for us in accomplishing his purposes. Trust in what God has provided through his grace and mercy to us. He has shown his redeeming love for us. Let's pray. Father God, give us a Ruth 2 kind of belief, a belief that gives us total faith in you for what has happened and for what you have planned. A life where really nothing will happen by chance, but through your careful planning. A kind of faith that's free from the need to run around in other fields and pursue other pleasures. A kind of heart that's full of grace and mercy for others' lives, for the spiritually and physically poor that are all around us. And Father, for us to be humble to recognise the mercy and grace given to us, knowing that this comes from you. In your Son's name. Amen.